This reading indeed is taken from the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and we're going to start at chapter 3 beginning with verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we laboured and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you, so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy but busybodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Good afternoon, friends. Chris is my name. I'm one of the ministry team here at OEC. If you are new or visiting, a very special welcome, and I hope you enjoy your time with us. If you want to get uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 open again, we'll be looking at that quite closely this afternoon. And thinking about what it means to stand firm for Jesus and wait well for his return. Gee, I love that... um, (laughs) I love that kid spot with the toaster. Um, yeah, uh, I was distracted. Someone was talking to me, so I blame them for me not waiting well. But let me pray for us that we would um, work hard in uh, God's word this afternoon and be people who wait well. Heavenly Father and gracious God, uh, we thank you for these truths in your word. We pray as we have just read them and look at them more closely that you would plant them in our hearts so we may wait well for your son, Jesus. Amen. So as a minister, uh, weddings have unwritten rules that you need to be aware of. For example, the pen for signing the registry needs to be good enough to appear in the photos. A biro or a Bic pen just won't do. Uh, Jokes... The groom is fair game, the bride is a no-go, and mothers of the bride and groom are untouchable. Like, don't even think about going there. And finally, never ask musicians to be in your bridal party. 
They play by their own time. I learned that lesson the hard way with my own wedding. Uh, In preparing for the wedding, the plan was we go for a surf in the morning, then we spend time getting ready at the house, then we wait, fully prepared, and we go to the church. That is, we get ready, we wait well, and then we leave for church. The wedding was at 2pm, so the plan was to leave, uh, we're just down the road, so leave about 20 minutes to get to church, that's plenty of time. Uh, But my groomsmen did not wait well. The two Davids, Steve and I, we got ready. We were prepared. We waited well. We were ready to leave, and it's at this point that as we're walking out the door, uh, the other groomsman, Christian, catches my eye. He's on the sofa in his underpants watching TV. (laughs) Christian was not ready. He was not waiting well. And so we didn't leave on time. As a result, we got to the, uh, to the church five minutes to two. And that's only five minutes before Melinda arrived. And my point is this. There are two ways of waiting. We can wait poorly and we can wait well. The difference is what we do while we wait. Friends, how are you waiting for the return of Jesus? Uh, we read a couple of weeks ago. Can we get the next slide, Dave? Sorry, this click is not working. Um, We read in chapter 1 about the return of Jesus, that it is just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance on flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sure and certain fact that Jesus will return. And the return of Jesus changes everything. It will be a great and glorious day when the heavens and earth are peeled back with a roar. And the issue before us on that day will be, do you know God and have you obeyed the gospel? And that is the question that will separate those who receive judgment and from those who will receive eternal life and share in the glory of Jesus. And as we wait for Jesus to return, how will you wait? You see, the Thessalonians had a problem. Like my mate Christian, sitting in his underpants, there were some who were idle. They were not waiting well. And so Paul writes to this church, and in this final section, he helps them and us today to be ready, to be prepared to wait well. How do we wait well for the return of Jesus? Uh, Big idea this afternoon, we live lives worthy of the gospel, we see work as a gift, and we take sin seriously. Uh, We'll cut the passage three ways. There's a problem in verse 6. There's there's a principle in verses 11 and 12, and there's some practical uh, instructions in verses 14 to 15. Well, let's go on with the problem. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Last week in chapter 2, we saw that the tradition Paul is referring to is the gospel. That's the saving message of Jesus Christ. And here, the word idle in the original simply means disorderly. 
So the idle are believers who are living disordered lives, not in line with the gospel. What are they doing wrong? Have a look at verse 9. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. In the Roman Empire, when philosophers would travel from city to city, they would make their living giving public talks. Uh, Like at the footy, they would charge tickets, and that's how they would make a living. But Paul, as he uh, travels around the Roman Empire, he does something completely different. Rather than asking people to pay him to hear the gospel, and rather than being a burden to the local church and asking them to financially support him, he worked a job. He was a tradie. He made tents so that others could hear the gospel free of charge. God bless our tradies. Uh, That's because at the heart of the gospel is self-sacrificial love for others. Jesus said, I haven't come to be served, I've come to serve others and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus served us by sacrificing himself for our sin. This other person-centred love is at the heart of the gospel. This is why Paul didn't want to charge for the preaching of the gospel, which means supporting other believers in church who can't work follows the example of Jesus. It's a beautiful generosity that we see, even here at OEC. Working to support yourself follows this example of Paul. But if a believer is able to work but not willing, if they take advantage of other people's generosity, then they aren't following the example of Jesus. They aren't living by the teachings of Paul. Uh, They aren't living a life in line with the gospel that has saved them. And so, friends, can you see the problem? The idle are living disordered lives. They are able to work, but not willing to work. I love verse 10. It quite literally says, they should eat their own bread. Now, we need to be careful here because Paul is speaking about an attitude to work, not an ability to work. In our church, there are many brothers and sisters with disabilities, those struggling with mental illness or health, many people who want to work but are unable. Also, we have people who are caring for sick loved ones. We have people who are raising their children at home, which, of course, those two things are work, but sometimes society doesn't recognise its value. So to be clear, Paul is not speaking about those examples. The idle are those who are able to work but not willing, living disordered lives not in line with the gospel, which means standing firm for Jesus to wait well for his return means we need to be people who live lives in line with that gospel, to live lives worthy of God. And now we can fall into the trap sometimes of thinking, well, Paul's teachings here, they're a little bit different from Jesus' teachings. You know, we think, well, if Paul teaches me to obey Jesus, then I should do it. 
But if Paul teaches me something that is not included in the Gospels or Jesus' words, then I'm free to make up my own decision. But did you hear the emphasis in Paul's instructions? He commands them with the authority of Jesus as an apostle of Jesus, which means we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that these words are for a particular church in a particular context that is different from us. This is not Paul's hot tips for holy living. This is the word of God. And in a beautiful way, God, by his word this afternoon, is bringing us back in line with his gospel as we wait for his son to return. Like lifeguards at a beach who call out to the swimmer who is drifting away for fear that they will be lost at sea. God, through his word this afternoon, is calling us back to his gospel so that as we wait for Jesus to return, we would not drift away and be lost but rather we would continue to live the gospel and wait well. Now, I think the big question that comes up is, why is work so important? I mean, if Jesus is returning any day, then why do we need to work? This comes to our second point, the principle. Uh, in 2008, Rupert Murdoch, the media mogul, gave a speech about the danger of idleness in Australia. He stated... The bludger has become an Australian icon, and we are in danger of becoming a nation of bludgers. Many Australians will learn the hard way what it means to be unprepared for the challenges that a global economy can bring. While support is required for those in general with genuine need, we must be warned of institutionalizing idleness. For Murdoch, Work is important because, it's, because it's, it's a financial necessity and it gives security to our future. And the danger is that people who love Jesus and wait for him to return, that we take on the views of our culture and our world, world and this becomes our view of work as well. But friends, the Bible gives us a bigger and better picture of work. Have a look at verse 11. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, oh, sorry, they are busy, not busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, I love Paul's play on words here. It really shows you the tension that's happening within the church at Thessalonica. Uh, the idle are being a burden to those in church and, their, uh, and taking advantage of their generosity. It, it's creating tension as they focus on the private matters of others, but it also brings the gospel into question to those who are outside the church. I mean, can you imagine inviting a friend to church? Hey, I'd love for you to hear more about Jesus. Come to my church uh, Thessalonica Evangelical Church and um, uh, yeah I'd love you for you to come and them to say well hang on I know what happens at that church I know that when people trust Jesus they become loafers that would be a terrible thing to hear so instead what does Paul say work quietly and provide for yourselves and verse 13 continue to do good that is serve and support others God gives us work to take on responsibility, to provide for ourselves and our families, 
and to serve others as well, which means the principle that Paul is working with is that work is a gift from God. I was wondering how that would land. (laughs) I'll say it again. Work is a gift from God. You see, there's a world of difference between what culture says about work and the Bible's view about work. Now, I love a good spin-off series. Uh, My wife and I love The Mandalorians, you know, that spin-off series from Star Wars. And I feel right now it would be a great time to have a spin-off preaching series on the theology of work for four weeks. We don't have time to do that right now, but let me give you four quick things to consider. First, if we go to the next slide, thanks, Dave. First, God made us to work. That is, uh, work is not a result of the fall. Genesis 2 says that humanity was created to work. Two, God commands us to work. Uh, It's all through the scriptures. It's even in the Ten Commandments. For those who have the ability to work, they are commanded to work. God redeems our work. Sin makes work toil. Yet Jesus gives work dignity and hope. And finally, God is at work in this world. In John 5, Jesus says, The Father is always at his work and I am working too. God invites us to work with him as he takes people from death to life through the preaching of the gospel. It's a work that is worthy of stopping full-time work to pursue God's work. It's even worth pursuing a ministry apprentice. Apprenticeship. And if you'd like to know more about that, you can talk to me. Uh, But this is my point. John Stott summarizes it like this. Next slide. Thanks, Dave. Work is the expenditure of energy. Okay, I'll just read it. Work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Which means the problem is not the gift of work, the problem is our heart. Our world loves productivity, success and constant busyness. I mean, just ask someone how they're going over afternoon tea today. I will guarantee them, I will guarantee you that they, like me, may say, well, I feel busy. If we were to take prayer points this afternoon, what are things that we can be praying for? Like me, I'm sure many of you would say, well, pray for me because I feel busy. Well, we say this because we feel the pressure from society to achieve at a certain level, to have status and success. And when we follow the world's view of work, we take the good gift of work and we turn it into a God. And so we sacrifice things And we prioritise things, not based on our love of God, but on our need to succeed in work. The result is either one of two things. We either embrace this pursuit, this need to succeed, and we start to walk down the path of being workaholics. Or we reject it completely, work is evil, and we become idle. And so we pray to God, God, can you make sure that I work less? But the reality is our hearts, in our hearts, we need to pray, God, please change my heart so that I see work as a gift from you. So that I see this is an opportunity to take on responsibility. So that this is an opportunity for me to provide for my family and provide for others. 
so that this is an opportunity for me to see people who need to hear about Jesus. And God, in his grace, has put me in a workplace where I can share the gospel and others can hear about him. So when you go to work tomorrow, whether it's at Bloomfield or Canopolis High or um, somewhere else, when you're wrestling with the kids, whether you're caring for someone you love, whether you're giving a presentation or just seeking to be patient and show grace to a co-worker, friends, don't forget that work is a gift from God. Not to be idolised, not to be put as number one, but one that he gives us so we may serve him faithfully. Which means waiting well for Jesus to return means we work well. Can I ask, how are you going at waiting? Do you view work from the world's perspective or from God's perspective? Where do you need to change your priorities of work? How would we do this? I mean, as we wait well for Jesus to return, how do we do this as a community? Well, this brings us to our third point, the practical. Have a look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Did you notice that Paul instructs the whole church here? It's not just the minister or the overseers. It's the whole church, and they are to not mix with the idol. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the the metaphor of dough. If you like making sourdough, shout out to the Hickses, you know that it's a teaspoon of yeast that's only needed to change a whole bread loaf, a whole loaf of bread. And when sinful behaviour like idleness is tolerated in God's people, that small thing threatens to shape and change a whole church. So the Thessalonians shouldn't mix with these people. And the purpose is that they would feel shame. That's a strong word, isn't it? Why shame? Because when shame is correctly understood in the Bible, it should always lead us to God. Go to the next slide. Psalm 84 says, cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, O Lord. And 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Shame is a conviction that should lead us to grieve our sin and return to Jesus. How do we do this? As a community, verse 15, not as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this, and Titus chapter 3 as well. We see that if sin persists in the life of a believer and people refuse to continue to, refuse to obey the word of God, if, if people refuse to align their lives with the gospel and live a life worthy of God, then further action needs to be taken. Leaders of the church need to be involved, and there needs to be a clearer separation. But in this beautiful way, Paul really gets to the heart of what it means to be in community with other disciples of Jesus, how we disciple one another. You see, on one hand, the Thessalonians are not to mix with the idol, 
yet at the same time they treat them as family. It's walking alongside brothers and sisters in Christ with open hearts and an open Bible. It's using accountability and compassion to call them back to the foot of the cross, to call them back to Jesus. You see, at the foot of the cross, there is only level ground. At the foot of the cross, there is no care for status and achievements. At the foot of the cross, there's no concern for age or maturity. At the foot of the cross, there's no place for my rights or my freedoms. For those who humble themselves by trusting in Jesus and repent of their sin, they will be forgiven, restored and empowered to continue to live lives worthy of God. And Paul is saying in this letter, this is how we help one another stand firm for Jesus. This is how we help one another wait well as Jesus returns. Uh, In my experience of church, uh, before Bible college and after, I've only seen this done once in a church for people who are idle. Back in Sydney, my wife and I were part of a church in a very wealthy part of Sydney. Uh, This resulted in our church in a group of five Christian guys who finished their uni degrees and didn't look for work because they didn't need to. The generosity of their parents and the generosity of their church meant that they didn't need to work. They were youth leaders who served in the church, led on all of the Christian camps during the year, and they spend most of their time playing video games and at the beach. You see, it's not that they were unwilling, uh, unable to find a job, they were unwilling. Five young men who weren't living lives worthy of the gospel. Friends, what would you say to these young men if they were in your church? <clears throat> if you were in their growth group? If you were parents of the teenage boys that they were leading? As you can imagine, it wasn't long before they became a burden on the church and caused tension, tension in their own leadership teams and tension in the Bible study groups. So we as a church put this into practice, accountability and compassion. We didn't kick them out of church. We didn't excommunicate them. We walked alongside them with open hearts and an open Bible. So I started a Bible study group for them. It met at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning because they didn't have anywhere else to be. (laughs) Over the next 18 months, we read the Bible, we prayed together, and they kept each other accountable for looking for work. Uh, Over time, they all found jobs. Over time, they left home. Uh, Two years later, one of them started a ministry apprenticeship Uh, And in this beautiful way, the four other guys gave money to him because they could afford to support a gospel worker. Uh, Next year, that guy will start Bible college. Friends, can you see what happens when we as a community take sin seriously? When we practice accountability with compassion, You see, standing firm for Jesus and waiting well means we take sin seriously in other people's lives, but also we take it seriously in our own lives. And I think a lot of the time, 
that's where we struggle. We struggle to call people to account, to hold people to accountability and compassion because we are all too aware of the sin in our own life and that we're not taking it seriously. I think a lot of the time we fall into sin without thinking about it, without questioning it. We seek sin, we even pursue sin with joyful hearts. We take for granted the grace of God and we convince ourselves that sin doesn't matter. Sin might be pleasing to our eye and even feel good, bring fleeting happiness, but none of that makes it right. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, sin harms us. It hurts other people and it makes us hide in fear from God. It might be what you say or think about other people. Maybe how you treat your family or how you treat work. Maybe what you do with your partner or what you look at on the internet. You see, when we stop taking sin seriously, we are mocking God and we are not living lives worthy of the gospel. And so we take sin seriously in ourselves and others so we may lead one another back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross we see the blood-soaked hands of Jesus. At the cross we see him hung from his shoulders for our sin. At the cross we see the Father pouring out his judgment on the Son so that we could be forgiven and set free. So that from this new place of forgiveness we can be a blessing and a resource to brothers and sisters in Christ, helping them to stand firm for Jesus and helping them to wait well. Uh, friends, if you are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still investigating it, can I encourage you with the beauty of the cross, that at the cross of Jesus Christ our sin is paid in full. It does not just give us forgiveness of sin today and a relationship with God, but the promised hope that when Jesus returns, we will be prepared and we will be welcomed into his kingdom. Let me finish. Today we've asked the question, what does it mean to wait well for the return of Jesus? We've seen that it means living our lives in line with the gospel, viewing work as a gift from God and taking sin seriously. Sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, but also sin in ourselves, holding firm to the cross of Jesus Christ and waiting for him to return. Let me pray that God would do that in our hearts this week. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word this afternoon. We thank you for the promised hope of the return of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to wait well. Captivate our hearts and our minds with the truth of your gospel. Help us to see work from your perspective. But most, most importantly, help us to take sin seriously so that together we may wait well for your son um, as he returns. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.